This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am Chris Kreitschew, and if you're noticing that my voice still sounds suspiciously like Batman, that's because we're recording this episode right after we recorded the last one. That's right. It's easier to have a conversation that has an explanation and an exposition when you do them back-to-back. So that's what we're doing this year. So... We're going to exposit a little bit on the postmodern condition or board on knowledge. If you haven't listened... But, but who is the other half of this we? I'm Stephen Caradini, whatever. <laughs> I'm just a postmodern subject. I don't have <laughs> universalized rules. I'm not Stephen Caradini all the time. You made a novel move in this language game, but the question was is, it was it legitimate? I say Well, no. did people laugh? That would be an acceptable response. There you go. <laughs> I'm Stephen Caradini, and we're going to talk about the postmodern condition. And as I mentioned in the last episode, there's a lot going on in this book. Even though it's only 67 pages long with an appendix that's 15 pages, there's a bunch. He doesn't repeat himself. He just barrels through. So we're going to have to pick some certain parts and talk about the ones that are most important. And so we're going to start with the epistemology and work backwards. And so there's two ways to approach the epistemology here. The first is the epistemology that's espoused in the actual text of the book, the first 67 pages, the language games bit. And then there's the epistemology Mm -hmm. that's espoused in the appendix, which is about what you should be doing with your soul, which is suspiciously like Plato. Interesting. And his bit on presenting the unpresentable with which we concluded the last episode sounds very like Plato, something, something forms. In fact, I believe that's the one time in the book when he actually mentions Plato. There's two different things you're on here and they do link up, but the epistemology that is essentially espoused by the first part is to a large extent what people think about when they think about postmodernism. And so they're thinking about the breakdown of a unified system under which all of our actions and communication are grounded. So insofar as that ever existed, which is a debatable <laughs> yes. concern. Our classical Confucianism and Islam and any other major worldview systems actually commensurable? Discussion for another That's, time. It's it's clear that there are sufficiently difficult problems you have to jump over if you want to make that claim. Yes. So insofar as the the universal probably never existed, definitely the to the national extent, to the cultural extent there were some underlying tenets. And so this is the part that he is arguing is breaking down, that the national culture, the societal culture, um, the lived experience of people contributing to the mass of people that are directly and imagined to be around them is is falling apart. Right. Due to the lack of legitimation of claims, essentially. And there's like a subterranean historical argument hidden in all of this that goes back to the argument against the German philosophers that we don't have time to get into. We did enough trying to get into that last time. Suffice it to say that there's a lot that he's expecting that you already know. But epistemologically, he's essentially saying that everything becomes local. And this is really interesting to think about in the context of the internet, which is an attempt at essentially a... Enlightenment style universal grounding, especially Facebook. Like Facebook is literally an attempt at a universal grounding. It's also interesting in that his gesture toward what might provide the basis for or the outline of a politics, as I read last Mm. episode, that would respect both the desire for justice and the desire for the unknown is 
computerization, which took the second of two paths he outlines, the first being a dream instrument for controlling and regulating the market system, extended to include knowledge itself and governed exclusively by the performativity principle, which, as you may recall from our last discussion, is basically technical efficiency. But he suggests that it could also aid groups discussing meta-prescriptives by supplying them with the information they usually lack for making knowledgeable decisions. He wants to go down that second path and, quote, give the public free access to the memory and data banks, unquote. He thinks that if all language games could be games of perfect information at any given moment, they would therefore be non-zero-sum games because discussion could always keep moving and you would never exhaust the stakes of discussion. You would be able to thereby get to justice and the unknown. And that unknown bit is particularly where it connects to his art theme later. But as Stephen just said, this points very directly and connects very directly to the kinds of things we see. Is the internet a mechanism for control? Is the internet a place where information just wants to be free, man, and enough given enough information, people actually can get to justice? Yeah. These are in some ways the running themes of the last two decades, at a minimum, arguably of the last five. Yeah, which is basically when he wrote this book was in the 70s, right. like when we started to argue about these. There are a bunch of things in here analytically that he's just dead on right. about. A lot of his discussion of the life of the university and how it gets shaped Ugh. by some of these epistemological shifts are varyingly dead on and also and then really weirdly wrong yeah you're just like hang on what there were some parts where i felt in the language of the people very seen it was (laughs) very uncomfortable especially from 50 years on we could do a whole episode in that and that's why i didn't bring it up is because i would have hijacked the whole episode (laughs) but the the essential tension there is one that we've talked about before on Winning Slowly and one that is we can't talk about enough. It is the dream of two different types of people with technology. Now, right. we are neither of those people, but those what? those two types of people <laughs> have been running the show, epistemologically speaking, right. for decades. Which is why I'm particularly right. interested that we're going to talk about Kurzweil, which is like the way far end of the <laughs> control mechanism that circles back around deliberation, which is astonishing. And then why we're going to read Dark Matters, which is basically an indictment of that whole idea um, the, that really control is just control. It's just surveillance, which is I've not read that book yet, but I'm, I'm putting words in the author's mouth. I apologize. But that's what I, I expect from what I know about that book. And so it's an accurate expectation of the problems that we will be uh, encountering. And what's interesting is that he feels like there is actually possibility of emancipation, which is a theme that runs through the book in that he says that in the postmodern condition, there cannot be emancipation because there are not sufficiently enough people involved in any conversation to emancipate. And in fact, the old modernist dream of liberation and emancipation is what got us here. Right. So thanks, Habermas is basically his... But then he jumps right back in at the end and he's like, but wait, we can do... He doesn't use the word emancipation, liberation. He uses justice in the unknown. But like, it's pretty much the same thing. Like a more just 
perfecter society, right? Like he's right. he's pointing towards this idea of transcendence, and why not? Because when you lose the ground of revelation, you still want transcendence somewhere. And like, all right, that's the right. episode. Hi, Kurzweil. <laughs> that's the episode. Let's go read Kurzweil. <laughs> um, so there's there's an important thing here about the epistemology of the technic, the technical that he's right on. And right. is actually not what he is most quoted for, but I think he is probably even more correct, more apt mm-hmm. in its formulation than the the breakdown contract thing, because he is accurate in that the temporary contract is preferred, but there's a lot of things for which we have decided we don't want temporary contract. So he's that is right insofar as he was talking at that time but we have we've had some things happen since then um then <laughs> maybe not the ideal form however the third thing or the second thing well i'm getting all torn up i i told chris in advance i could do like three episodes on this because <laughs> i want to jump back and talk about power but i also want to talk about the epistemology of art uh, power is the next one i was going to let's go for power and then we'll go to the epistemology of art so one of the things he mentions throughout the book is that when you remove revelation as the ground of shared community of shared language all of your language games are local But that doesn't mean that nothing takes the place of revelation. This is probably where this book is most misunderstood, Mm -hmm. is that it does not mean that there is a vacuum and that there is just chaos and society breaks down into anarchy. He actually thinks the exact opposite. He thinks that things end up being caught up in structures and systems which become self-reinforcing by use of technological efficiency and specifically, and perhaps tellingly, given the context in which he's writing the word force which he scare quotes at one right. point and listeners of this podcast and students of 20th century thought on things around education in particular may be familiar with another thinker who made a big deal out of the idea of force and how it relates to technique and technical prowess and learning and education, which are all right in view in this section of the text. That being Simone Weil and the way that things actually play out is that the system leaves enough room for play within it that it can absorb everything. He notes that there's one way in which power comes into play, which is the use of terror, the use of we're going to crush you style control. Right. But the way he thinks is actually tends to play out and is most likely to play out is control rather by leaving enough wiggle room that it can turn everything you do into further benefit for the system. And this is part of his critique as well of how things work in the university. Mm-hmm. Things become as he puts it mercantilized because everything gets valued or not based on whether it contributes to technical efficiency. Right. And this is a new variant of force that Simone Weil hadn't called out in quite the same way, but that her work laid the foundation for mm-hmm. in a large degree. And that Jacques Ellul very much mm-hmm. saw coming and very much calls out mm-hmm. in a book we're apt to read sometime in this series, the technological society, because power for him is a means of legitimation, but power does doesn't just mean a reign of terror. Power can just mean the ability to set the terms of these language games by which everybody else has to play. But from the top down is his particular problem because he argues that rules have to be set. But they end up set by these bureaucratic systems which constrain everything in them and are capable of adapting to everything in them. We might call this neoliberalism and, well, 
He's not wrong. not wrong. Also, basically, all of LM Sakasis's work is like basically <laughs> mm-hmm. this argument. Michael, if you're listening, please come on our show. We would talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. We want to talk to you. Have you read Leotard? I'm pretty you, sure you I must think have read Leotard. Yeah. yeah, but like, but but that's his whole argument is that it does not matter what happens inside the system. The system will make that part of the system, and if it's not part of the system, it will kick it out and eliminate it from existence because its existence is only the things it can read. Obviously, we think there's plenty of things outside the existence of the system, which is another argument Sikasis makes, but the system will attempt to assimilate itself. So, power is the the way that the system gets instantiated and then the way that it maintains itself with, in the end, recourse to total force, but it would prefer not to because that's inefficient. (laughs) It's not very effective (laughs) in the long run. You run out of people if you keep doing it. So it's, it's a very trenchant argument. The one thing that I have to say about this is that it complicates his argument about the belief that people have or lack thereof in meta narratives, mm-hmm. which astonishingly we didn't mention in direct <laughs> words in the first episode. So sorry about that. But he, he argues, uh, I define postmodern as an incredulity toward meta narratives. This incredulity is undoubtedly a product of progress in the sciences, but that progress in turn presupposes it to the obsolescence of the meta narrative apparatus of legitimation corresponds, most notably, the crisis of metaphysical philosophy and of the university institution, which in the past relied on it. And he goes on from there. The problem is that he's just installing the meta narrative of power right on top of it. And that's fine. You can do that. But it's hard to say, like, no one believes in meta narratives. Here's a meta narrative I believe in. It's called power. Right. Because notably, the Christian ethic, the meta narrative is not power. It's the anti-power narrative. So even if he thinks that power is raw and applicable without narrative value, power is itself a narrative. And in fact, he, he goes so far as to say that like how power installs itself is through a self-replicating process, which is essentially the same self-legitimating narrative type <laughs> argument that he made in pre-modern societies. And to that end... Specifically, neoliberalism is a narrative. It is a narrative of progress through technical control. And it is one that is incredibly pervasive. And he even gestures in this direction. And one of the things that comes up a lot when you're talking about postmodernism in its many varieties is that it tends to make exactly this mistake. It looks at fracturing, lived experience of fracturing, and it tends to correctly identify that there is some lived experience of fracturing. But the actual claim that out of that you can, should, or have ended up in a scenario where there are no governing meta narratives is just false. The actual lived experience of people is deeply informed by meta narratives. The meta narratives may shift, they may become meta narratives. And I think it's worth remembering that because they are meta narratives, I'm not making a an illegitimate move in the game here, if you will, to call this a meta narrative of self-actualization and effective individualism. This is a meta narrative. The it is a governing structure that leads people to live their lives in particular ways that is substrata for everything else that goes on as well as being the actual text of most of our art. It's 
not like these narratives have gone away. They've taken on different shapes and forms, and he's right to say that. Right. He's right to identify some of the ways in which these things may have governed more or less cohesive bodies. Though, again, even there, as we alluded to earlier in our discussion of this, those things had a lot more variation in yeah. the past than people tend to think. And so I think that the incredulity part is fine. Like, people don't believe in meta narratives as readily as they used to. Like, they are not imparted with this is how the society is, and then they believe it because it's how the society is. I be- I acknowledge that. But what's interesting is that that's not actually what this book is about. The incredulity to meta narratives is about how we agree that things exist in particularly science, but also in art. The- everything else is a a tailing function of those two drivers. And he's really not that interested in the actual life of persons, which is what the <laughs> Germans are mad at him about uh, and all the French theorists. But so I would be fine with incredulity, even with the fact that he doesn't really string out the incredulity as much as he could. But mm-hmm. then he goes on and says the obsolescence of the meta narrative apparatus of legitimation. And that's, it's just not obsolescent. It's just not. That's just wrong. That's a wrong statement that it's not obsolescent. And even if you tried to like delineate it down to like the legitimation function, that's not obsolescent either. No. And a a critical point in that direction, I think, that's also closely linked to the way that the dynamics around technical control we were talking about a minute ago play out is to consider the varied ways that technical control exists and plays out in many different contexts today. Because I think it's fair to say that both China and the United States have worked very hard to embody those kinds of systems, as has Western Europe in large part. Although and to varying chi- degrees, China's al- is crumbling right now because their legitimation exactly. problem is, is happening. Exactly that. The legitimation problem there around the meta narratives, and one could argue that there are legitimation problems in America and Western oh, yeah. Europe yeah, today yeah, yeah, yeah. for similar reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the particular questions around neoliberalism or whatever we want to call China's brand of neocommunism. Yeah. Well, so, or, so specifically, I was talking to a friend yesterday and he said, this is going to be a problem for China for a long time. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, coronavirus is going to be a problem for a long time. He's like, no, no, no. Like now that everyone knows that they lied about coronavirus, like why would you trust them? And I was like, oh, I don't. About anything. You're right. Ever. I now have yep. no reason to believe that they're telling the truth. I even wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt early on because of public health concerns. Nope. Nope. And that's going to be true internally with their quarter of the world's population. Yeah. And that's been happening more and more over the last couple of decades because of the advent of information technologies that make it much more difficult for them to... information? Huh? Right. There's this tension there, which is exactly what he gets at at the end of the book. Those information technologies, whether it's in China or in Iran or a number of other places, have been means of control, but they also are means by which that control is eroded. And you see the shape this takes in the West, in the United States, in our context, very differently. Very differently. But it does have both of those systemic reinforcement and undercutting the system effects. I would argue that a great deal of what we see with quote unquote fake news 
of whatever variety sure. is a function of the pervasiveness of quote unquote knowledge here yeah. and the lack of the ability to legitimate knowledge. You don't have a good way now to stack that up against some authoritative source well, yes or even no. to determine yeah. what constitutes. Right. Uh, I obviously don't think that's a universalizing right. Right, 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 truth, right, right. but I think that people's lived experiences. I see the context. Yes, that that is right. especially when people are attempting to wage disinformation campaigns that is the argument that is the point of a disinformation campaign so while i think there are ways out of that loop Mm -hmm. the primary explanation of that situation is exactly that so i agree with that that is was my biggest beef with the book is that it did not view power as a meta-narrative which is probably the most not self-consistent well and, and maybe it wasn't at that particular point in in history but now it's literally the most important thing that people understand in my opinion about technology <laughs> is that it it is its own narrative and power is part of its narrative and so um you know that's roughly the first 3 seasons of winning slowly in a nutshell like concluding with the amazon one right like nothing is inevitable all of this is what they want you to know and whether or not you believe it right like um and so, so that was, that was my biggest beef, which means I'm going to give this, we're going to put the art and epistemology on the side for a minute. I'm going to let you have your biggest beef with the density of air. So this is a recurring problem when philosophers try to do science. things with quantum mechanics and science in general, but especially anything around quantum mechanics and its implications for philosophy more generally. Now, I'm also going to say right up front that every time that physicists and particularly quantum physicists try to do philosophy, they tend to do it equally it's badly. Really bad. So let's just get that out <laughs> up front. But his entire discussion of quantum mechanics is wrong. And it's wrong at a level that an undergraduate student of physics can easily understand and recognize all the ways that it's wrong. You don't have to have a PhD in quantum mechanics to understand the ways that it's wrong. He's trying to make an argument that the way that quantum mechanics plays out and the specific mathematical details around quantum mathematics, as well as other branches of mathematics and physics that emerged in roughly the mid 20th century, introduced discontinuity, whereas the previous kinds of physics and math were all about continuous systems. And he wants to link this up to his notion of discontinuity and fracturing in epistemology more generally. The problem is that in a lot of cases, the systems he's describing are actually more continuous and less discrete than the things that came before them. And the kinds of things he wants to do where the the smaller you focus the the more things become different from how they were before don't lead to any of the kinds of conclusions that he wants them to so he gives his example of the density of air and he tries to work this out mathematically the fact that the context in which you measure things has implications for the precision with which you can measure them and has implications for the results you get is not some novel philosophical insight. It's a duh thing that's gone back to the ancient Greeks. My Batman voice is coming for you, Leotard. It's one of those things that when I got to this section, I knew how I was going to feel about it, and I felt about it exactly how I expected to feel about <laughs> it. And it's just one of those things that I offer as a caution to would-be appropriators of science for arguments about other fields, and likewise going the other direction. It is very difficult to properly understand whether the math says what you think it does philosophically if you don't actually take the time to really understand the math. And he just clearly didn't. 
If you read the newspaper and every time they report on something you actually know something about, they get really important things wrong. Eventually, you should probably start wondering whether they're making that exact same kind of category mistake in every other field they're talking about. This raised that kind of skepticism for me with him because he gets it so wrong. Now, that said, he doesn't seem to be much of an expert in physics or math. He does seem to be much more expert. This is perhaps ironic, given his discussion of expertise in language games, but he does seem to be much more expert in having read philosophers and understood their meaning and knowing what he's actually arguing about there. Right. So I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt there, but I'm a lot less inclined to after his section on physics. Well, and so this is the part where he mentioned that uh, it's a bit of a parody and that he knows uh, a less than limited amount about right. the science. Later, Leotard admits as much. But it's but what's interesting is that it's literally this one section mm-hmm. that goes awry. Like earlier parts where he's talking about like how science is produced, like the production of knowledge in scientific communities. I was like, that's not wrong. Actually, that's fine. Eh, it's it's partly wrong. No. I gestured at this in my discussion in the last episode around the positivists and everything else. Well, and. Eh. Positivism was a weird sidestep during the 20th century that most people prior to the 20th century and all working scientists I've ever talked to in the late 20th and early 21st centuries reject. Yeah, so, but, but this was written in the 70s when that was still hanging around. Like, Yes, and I grant that, and he had some reason to address it. Well, but, and, and the fact that it's rejected like, is part of the whole point, right? Like, the fact that we came up with this thing and rejected it is literally like part of the point. And then that wasn't actually even the part I was talking about, but it was the part where he talks about like the the whole process of science is like when you prove something, people don't go like, oh, good, it's proved now. Like they <laughs> they go and try to dissent, right? Like that's the point of science. They're trying to figure out, is it true? How do we know? What right. do we do? And like the process of creating science looks like that. And his argument is that that's not, the same thing as we used to do with science. Like there's, there's no ground of like, well, you know, Isaac Newton said, and there we are. Right. That's not actually how that worked either though. Well, people argued a lot with Newton and Galileo and Copernicus and yeah, but, but at some point (laughs) the science settled and he's saying that the the problem is that science does not settle anymore and that it can't settle. But that's also just not, and hasn't been an accurate characterization. And Thomas Kuhn's, which we'll link this in the show notes, Thomas Kuhn's, the structure of scientific revolutions traces out how this actually works, but actually 20th century science was very settled. The early 20th century witnessed a paradigm shift. And after that, including up through the current day, it was, and has remained quite settled on a lot of things. And we might be getting to a point where we actually are getting closer to a paradigmatic shift again. But and this is why I got frustrated. His history of science is about as bad as his philosophy of science. He's just he doesn't know a lot of things. And that's always the problem when you're writing on an area where you're not actually the expert and you're trying to draw on it. It's hard to do this. The book we're reading in the background, Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, she has this great paragraph, which I quoted in my newsletter this weekend, where she talks about when you actually start digging into a subject where you're a novice, what you end up finding is this constant opening of yet more in front of you that you recognize you don't know. And you're in this process of current revision of what you already thought. And at some point you just have to publish. And it's a beautiful paragraph. You will link 
to that issue of the newsletter, but I, I didn't get that from him here. He was just really wrong on stuff. And it just made me, like I said, it made it hard for me to take him seriously. That's fair. As far as it goes, what I'm arguing is that my understanding of how the knowledge is created and the language games with which the knowledge is created, the the giving of statements and the receiving of statements and the rejecting of statements mm-hmm. in the production of science slash the production of knowledge looked right to me. Yes. And I will grant that part. It was just everything else around it. That's That's all <laughs> I'm arguing is that in that specific <laughs> section, I was like, yes, that's pretty much a problem because yeah. that is how that works and that's not a self-consistent sort of situation. Correct. And when you try to describe it with these other things. Now, I'm not defending his history of science. I'm not defending... <laughs> Fair. I will Fair. I will say that we have 50 extra years of, of visual on it, so there are some of the things that like maybe weren't quite dead yet, but all I was saying was about the language games, which is what I most appreciated about this is because like since mm-hmm. I've spent a good chunk of time reading and thinking about language games, reading about how language games work and interpret and don't interpret or fail to interpret as a mechanism was interesting and I thought was was valuable. And I actually, I not only agree, but I would go so far as to say that if I could snip that section out of the book and hand it to a fair number of these scientismists out there, <laughs> I would do so yeah. because you have the Richard Dawkinses of the yeah. world who don't understand that science isn't self-legitimating. Yeah. And of course, one of the major problems that everyone's had with Dawkins is that anyone who's read any actual philosophy of science, meaning not Richard Dawkins, know that he just has no idea what he's talking about on some of these things. That these are old, well-worn, well-known problems yeah. that science isn't and cannot be self-legitimating. So I'm I'm with Leotard yeah. there. And like I said, I would like to just like cut that section out of my book and mail it to Dawkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally true. Don't, but- don't cut paper out of your books, people. That's bad. <laughs> Uh, so, but, but that links up to the last thing I want to talk about is the epistemology Mm -hmm. of art. And so this understanding of how the language game aspect not only underpins his view of science and knock on society, but he essentially is arguing that language games reveal things about the soul um, and about the state of human affairs and it's, it's proper end all of the which he would reject that language. All of it would right. be the soul and right. he doesn't think any of it none exists. of that good. None of that is good. But he thinks there are things which are unpresentable, even though he doesn't know what they which are is, exactly. I mean, which is the paradox of postmodernism, right? Like the the unknowable, right? When you remove that it's revelation, then that it's God. Like there's he he references the infinite is an unpresentable. Well, yes, that's totally true. This like and God and the infinite are like deeply intertwined, right? Like that's part of the nature of of how God shows Himself and those sorts of things. Um, not just in Christian the philosophy, but in lots of other religious cultures, right? Like right. So there's an interesting tension here where. He He's talking directly about technology and he pivots this and says, because of art concerns, because of societal concerns, we need certain types of art. And he goes farther than saying we need people to make this certain type of art, but we need people to look at this certain type of art is highly prescriptive for a postmodernist, <laughs> highly prescriptive. Not only do we need more artists, we need you to go and look at their things, not even pay them. He doesn't even right. ask you to pay them. Like part of it is that he doesn't want you to pay them. He wants you to go and look at their art and understand what it means for society. And so there's this interesting move where he's he's putting the avant-garde art front in a prophetic 
Manic Mode. Which should sound familiar to anyone who's paid any attention to art over the last 50 years. Right. He's saying these are the people that can tell you how it is. They have access to the real stuff, right? And the real stuff, like Plato would suggest, is not actually presentable. You can gesture at it. You can at best get that shadow on the cave wall. Right. And it is that elusiveness alluding to things that actually gets to his notion of the sublime, because that's the most you can do because these things are unpresentable. Yeah, they are hidden, essentially. They are the real stuff of life, but they cannot be accessed, which as an epistemological stance, if we're just thinking about knowledge, is sort of a de facto, like we don't know what we don't know, right? We, we cannot interpret that which we cannot understand or that which we cannot grasp. Like, there is a finite limitation that he is accurately describing. If we're just talking about material selves, mm-hmm. there is a material limit to what we know. But then he reaches towards the transcendent. There are transcendent things above the material. Even if you just delimit it to the infinite, which is his specific word, it's beyond us. It's transcendent. It is outside the realm of technics. It's outside of the realm of the human body. And so there's this fascinating shift that he's making to where the language games of art pointing out the, or I guess they're the art games at this point, <laughs> the, the art games pointing out the rules of art, which thereby point out the rules of society. So therefore you can transcend the rules of society and live your just and free life, which, you know, that's a significant amount of what the judiciary system is, is arguing about the rules of the rules, right? right. Um, so he's not wrong in that front that that a lot of justice comes down to what are the rules that shape the rules. But this it's this note to transcendence that gets me. Like, this, this you can't ever replace it. It also strikes me that the problem with what he says here, although I disagree with some of his specifics because of what I'm about to say, is not so much what he does affirm, because art does and can have this value, but in what he rejects, mm, that there's an yes. incompleteness here because he says effectively that good art can only be this kind of gesturing That's at the right. unrepresentable as a means of accomplishing these certain prophetic modes, right. rather than saying that one good function of art is this, but it is not the only good function of art. And I think this is in part because I haven't read him other than this, but when I read this book as a whole, it seems to me that his notion of the good has this same deficiency. He doesn't recognize a good, and I think this is part of where he gets tied up with his desire for justice and his hopes for how justice might come. He doesn't have a frame for as we talked about all of last season, a positive angle to that. It is all the via negativa. And that way of negation has a place, certainly even in the context of theology, I would argue that there's a really important place where some things you can only say rightly by saying what is not the case about Mm -hmm. them, because you can't Mm -hmm. manage it solely by positive statements. But the best theologizing, for example, is nearly always a mix of both this kind of apophatic negating theology and affirming positive theology that says this is true, this is not true, and we cannot actually fully trace out the shape with positive statements that is shaped by those negative statements. It's the two held together that do the work. And likewise with art, this is where I depart from him. There are really important things that deconstructive forms of art, which is what he's gesturing at here, though he doesn't use the word, do and work that they do that purely constructive forms of art, that realist or modernist forms of art do not and cannot do. But the same is true in reverse as well. And the best 
kinds of art are often, and I think he would like this thought, even if he would disagree with the specifics, they're synthesizing the two. They're deconstructing and then building back Mm -hmm. up again or building up again to tear down, to show a kind of folly or things like that. So I liked a lot of what he had to say here. I thought there was valuable insight, but he is missing something really important. Yeah. And there's, there's one sentence on page 79. That's sort of the main argument of the book. And it takes reading some really dense argumentation to (laughs) appreciate, but the last line is he is directly calling out Hopper Moss because <laughs> yes, like again I think they were about to have a fist fight in the street at this point. <laughs> he accuses Hopper Moss that his aesthetics has remained for him that of the beautiful. And so he acknowledges that there is an aesthetics of the beautiful, but that it is <laughs> not ideal to invert the Germans. Ironically. Yes, to invert the Germans. He thinks that there are other things, there are other aesthetics that should be developed or appreciated. But what we would say, I think, is that if Habermas's aesthetics remained for him only of the beautiful, which is probably not true. Probably not. But if it were, then we would say that, yeah, he, only the beautiful is not sufficient for what art is capable of doing and should be doing. It should be doing more than that. Right. Um, it is more than just a Thomas Kincaid painting. <laughs> as pretty as those are, like they're popular because they're pretty. But there's more that it, that art can and does need to do. And again, that's because it gestures back to the soul and what the soul should be doing. There's more than just being emotional and nostalgic and contented with yourself in life. Now, it's good to be those things, and I aspire. <laughs> but there's more than that. There is, there is dissent. There is righteous grieving. There's more than that. And so, it's a very interesting section And the way that he frames it, which we don't have time really to get into, basically makes it look like, yeah, I had to write this whole other book to basically write this one, (laughs) to write these 15 pages. As we've alluded to, our next several books will be in order. Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines. That will be March. You can get that for $1.99 on Alibris. That's right. Then Jurassic Park. And we will both be reading the book and watching the movie in april yeah if we get if we get really advanced we'll like do like a live streaming where like we're chatting at each other like through a medium while we're watching jurassic park at the same time in different places that would be awesome we could even set up a recording we could if we could live watch it twitch it we're gonna twitch it this is happening (laughs) that would be amazing it's not happening i mean it might be happening i'm probably the one who'd have to do all the technical work for that don't whoa 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 Most of the technical work. (laughs) Okay, most of the technical work. I'm fine. That's fair. (laughs) And then finally, in May, I say finally, but that will not be the final book of the season. We'll be reading Simone Brown's Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness. So please feel free to read and watch along with any or all of those. We would love that. Yep, yep, yep. And we'll be picking the next few books as we go along, but I think we probably will want to get through this three-book sweep before yep. we decide what the next book is. I think it will point us in a different direction afterwards. Yeah. The song at the beginning of the episode was Gizmo by Camel Power Club. That band name is fabulous. It's so great. 
We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. And remember that we bumped up and updated those tiers on Patreon. So you might want to go take a look at that. They might be more interesting yeah. to you now. Who knows? You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, both of those winning slowly. Email hello at winning slowly dot org and uh, if you're interested in the supporters thread on twist as always thanks for listening to assume assume that's not even a word. I mean, word. It, it, you just left out the B is really what you were doing <laughs> Details. there. Details. Details. That's, the, that's how the British don't have R's anymore. They just started leaving them out and just never put them back in. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's like essentially the concept of like, uh, you know, um, uh, well, that, never mind. I'm not going there. Um, cut. cut.